So this message is entitled The Gift of Discipline. And um, I, I tried preaching it this week, and I could not get it down under an hour and a half. So I just split it into two messages. Okay, so we're, we're going to be looking at um, God's gift of discipline to us. And there's two kinds of discipline that we're going to be looking at. Um, one is transformative discipline, and one is corrective discipline. And this, this morning, I'm going to kind of spend most of my time on transformative discipline, which is the majority of discipline we see in the New Testament. And then next week, we're going to look at corrective discipline, um, which is, I would say, the minority of things that we see in the New Testament, in the New Testament church. Um, if you have been following along in this series, you have probably been wondering, okay, we're talking about peace and peacemakers. When are we going to get to Matthew chapter 18, where God deals with, you know, how we confront one another, how we deal with one another, how we correct one another. And so that's where we're going to be at today. Um, but Matthew chapter 18 is more than just a few verses in the middle. And a lot of people love to jump right to the middle of this chapter and talk about the rules of confrontation in Matthew chapter 18 that they find in, in just a few verses in the dead middle of this chapter. And I know John MacArthur, when he went to preach on this text, he spent a couple of weeks preaching on what's around Matthew chapter 18 in the middle there, um, because that's important. And, and if you miss what's before it and what's after it, you're going to totally misunderstand and misapply what's in the middle of Matthew chapter 18. And so with that in mind, I, I want to jump in this morning and uh, kind of look at this idea of transformative discipline because it's really important and I think for us to remember uh, and to be reminded continuously of the love that God has for us and as his children because when we begin to talk about discipline even even when I just said those words and I said the gift of discipline there's some of you that were like gift <laughs> well what do you mean gift of discipline, right? Um, because there's a danger of seeing discipline through the filter of our parents, of our bosses, uh, just the people that were in authority over us. If you were in the military, maybe, you know, some of your commanding officers and their use of discipline. And, and sometimes in their sinful states, they don't always exercise discipline in effective ways. And sometimes the discipline comes out of selfishness. They, they were, you know, as, as a parent, I know many of you can probably relate to this. You're, you're in the middle of uh, Publix and your kid just starts acting a fool. I mean, they're just going crazy, screaming, yelling, I want this candy, I want this, you know. Everybody's looking at you and so you get embarrassed. And so selfishly you begin to discipline them trying to get them to change their behavior, not for their betterment, but so that the other people around you will stop looking at you, right? And we've taken some of these approaches to parents that are parenting that is a lot more self-centered than it is gospel-centered. 
And the same sadly goes for the church as well. And some of us have even applied it to God, thinking that this is the way that God disciplines us. And so when we hear the word discipline, we immediately jump to punishment, right? If there's going to be discipline, then there's going to have to be some kind of punishment involved. And this, unfortunately, again, is the case for many of us growing up. We've, we've experienced that kind of discipline. But I, I hope you've seen, and I know it's been a couple of weeks, it was like last year, the, the message that we preached at Christmas about the Father's love for us and understanding how great that love is that he has for us. And, and it's important that we start there with our conversation of discipline. So I, I went through the parable of the father with two prodigal sons. And because so many times we get so focused on the son, sons, we miss the father and, and the love that the father shows both of those two boys, going out to both of them, not just one of them, but reaching out, extending himself, humbling himself for both. Both boys who were lost and struggling in the world, and yet he loves them both. And it's important for us to have that backdrop in our mind, that, that pure picture of a father's love than what some of us grew up with or some of us deal with at our jobs. So I've tried to lay out the series in a way that you would be reminded and you would understand that, that when it comes to discipline, we're not so much talking about punishment as we are love. You see, God's discipline, he, he disciplines us, and, and conversely, when we practice discipline as believers, it should be because of love. Now, understand in this conversation about discipline and punishment, in life, there are consequences to our actions. That, that's the reality. But, but that's not what we're talking about here today. When we talk about God's discipline of us, we're, we're talking about his love for us. And, and there are consequences to the choices that we make, and we suffer those consequences. It doesn't erase that. But, but I, I want to separate, if we can, this morning, just for a time, that this idea of discipline automatically means some kind of punishment from God. And that's important theologically. Because if there is some kind of punishment that I have to bear, do you know what that means? That Jesus' punishment wasn't enough on the cross. Do, do you get that's why it's theologically important that we understand that God's discipline is not connected to punishment because the punishment has been paid for. It's been fully absorbed on the cross by Jesus Christ. And so when we think we have to be punished, when God disciplines us, we're, we're making a very poor theological statement about what we believe about God and the nature of Christ. And his divinity and his work on the cross, his finished work on the cross for us. But when we talk about discipline, when we look at God's discipline, we, we need to be thinking about love and not punishment. Because Not because we, we wish to harm or punish, but instead because we love people. This is, this is the way God disciplines us and it should be the way we discipline each other. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the 
The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Revelation 3.19 says, To whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, so the Father is coming to us and bringing discipline into our lives, not to punish us, but to love us. To show us the, the love that he has for us and, and to call us away from the things that will be harmful to us, like sin. And instead, call us to something. It's not just don't do that. It's come do this because this will give you life. That will steal your life. This will give you life like you've never imagined before. And that's a relationship with him, ultimately. And throughout the Bible, we see that the church, specifically in the New Testament, is made up of discipline. And I want to look at that this morning through the lens of Matthew chapter 18 and, and just give you a little bit of background. I'm not going to have time to read the whole text this morning, but, but I want to kind of give you an idea of where we are in Matthew 18 before I jump into the middle. Beginning in Matthew 18.1, there's this debate, this question that comes up amongst the disciples now. It, it's important, again, that you understand that Matthew chapter 18 is not... Jesus preaching to lost people. It's not Jesus preaching to the crowds at this point. It's, it's Jesus primarily talking to his disciples. They were considered the, the end people, however you want to define that. But he's not broadly speaking to the public here, although there are some people around, and we're going to see in this chapter uh, got Jesus involving some of those people. But he's primarily responding and speaking to the disciples. And they asked the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus launches into this teaching or a parable about how children and having, having faith like a child and welcoming those with a childlike faith into the church. And you see what Jesus is kind of doing there? He's kind of flipping everything around on them, right? Who's the greatest? And where does Jesus focus? These children, right? They're thinking, who's the ruler? Who's the most eloquent? Who's the, who's the guy who's going to be the right-hand man? And Jesus is saying, guys, you're, you're looking in the wrong direction. You're, you're thinking completely wrong. Your, your thinking is completely backwards, See, this is a dangerous thing that we as human beings do so many times. Is we, the more we walk with Jesus, the more we begin to want to sit in judgment of others. The more we want to know, am I the greatest in the kingdom? Am I the greatest in my little kingdom? Am I the greatest in my small group? Am I the greatest in my DNA? That, that's the danger of, of our human heart. And, and it's, it's funny, the longer that you're with Jesus, the longer that you are in the church, this, this temptation that develops is, is that we, we tend to look down on people. And we may not say it, we may not walk around speaking it out loud, but it, it's in our hearts. And we kind of look at new believers and we say, oh, you know, these these poor new believers, and yet Jesus is flipping things around on them. 
as he often does. He says very shocking things. And one of the shocking things he says in the beginning of this chapter is that, that you've got to make yourself lowly. You've got to make yourself humble. Just like one of these little children. And when you do that, then you're the greatest in the kingdom of God. And he goes on and he talks about the danger of someone leading those people astray and leading those people away from God. And it would be better for them to what? Tie a big stone around their neck and throw themselves into a lake, right? Like if, if you're misleading these humble little children, then it would be better for you to just throw yourself in a lake with some cement shoes, right? And he talks about the sin itself next that, that causes it. The sin that causes you to lead the humble, the, the, the little children away. And in reference to that, just, just like the example he uses with the lake, notice what he says you should do. It's better for you to cut off your arm and go into heaven with one arm than to go in with two arms. Right? He's talking about disciplining ourselves through the word. But then he gets to the parable of the lost sheep. And this is something that we've heard, again, in this series a little bit already. But again, he brings this story up in verse 12. He says, what do you think if, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus begins this discussion about discipline with this bookend, reminding us again of the father's love that he has for us. Being the shepherd, going out, searching for that one, leaving the 99 because of compassion, the, the compassion that he has for these sheep, or in other words, his children in the context of what has been already talked about here in Matthew chapter 18. And it's in that light that he then launches into his discussion about how to handle discipline amongst ourselves. And when we've been wronged in the church. And in the Bible, again, there's two kinds of discipline that we see. The, the first kind primarily involves formative discipline. And formative discipline is teaching what is right. So the majority of the time that you come to church, discipline takes the form of formative discipline. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but when you come to church, you are being disciplined through formative discipline. It is our hope that everything we do on this stage is promoting and teaching you what is right, how we should live our lives. We see it in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together 
and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers, day by day, those who were being saved. As we see in this passage and other passages in the New Testament, that the idea of formal discipline includes many different kinds of activities that, that God has designed to transform our hearts, to, to transform our minds, to transform our very character. And the process, if you stop and think about it, really begins with evangelism, right? We're educated into our need for a Savior. Someone teaches us the Word of God. It, they teach us of our need. And so someone has taught or preached the gospel to you. They've informed you of your need for a Savior. And it's through that teaching that you begin to realize as the Holy Spirit works in your heart that you are under judgment, that, that you deserve death. You, you were bebopping along, doing life, didn't have a care in the world, and then all of a sudden, this formative discipline happens. Someone tells you your actual state, and the Holy Spirit works in your heart to make you aware and to make you see that that is true, that is the case, Right? And that you need salvation. And you need the salvation that God has secured through the life and death and resurrection of his precious son. All these things that are taught to us, this is formative discipline in our lives. When we put our trust in Christ, we, we gain not only eternal life, but also the blessings of this lifelong process of being conformed into the image of through formative discipline. We have a big fancy religious word that we call it. It's called sanctification. Sounds so fancy, right? But it, it's just being conformed into the image of Christ. And the ways that we do that, I mean, right now we are doing that. You're, you're here and you're hearing the word. You're singing the word. We're praying the word, right? All of those things are working to form us and to shape us. So we come, we listen to God's word being preached and publicly being proclaimed. That's one of the ways that God uses formative discipline to teach us and guide us. And I've heard so many people, even, even over the last couple of weeks, that, that have come to me and said, you know, as you've been going through this series about being a peacemaker, like I, I realize there's things that, that I've done, there's things that I'm holding on to that I'm not letting go of, that's not allowing for my family gatherings to be peaceful. And God is showing me that and convicting me of that. Right? That's the, the work that the formative discipline is, is taking root in our heart because we're hearing the word of God preached. We're understanding what it means to be a people of peace. And, and it's changing us. It's transforming us. And it's forming us into the image of Christ. That also happens in our small groups. It happens in Bible studies where we come together in smaller groups of believers and we, we wrestle with how do we apply these scriptures in our lives this week, right? And again, I've heard so many stories of how God has used those times to convict someone of their sin, to make them realize for the first time their need to change, 
We also do it through entering into discipleship-type relationships. We call them DNA groups here. They're even smaller, like two, three, four people get together, and they just walk through the Scripture. They walk through the Word together, and they're convicted of their sin, and they begin to confess and change as they share their sin with one another so that their brothers and sisters can, can pray for them and can challenge them from week to week and encourage them. Another way that we're involved in formative discipline is by receiving and giving material aid through individual acts of mercy. You see that in 1 Timothy 5.16, Acts 4.34-35, and Acts 6.1-7. When we're involved in the ministry of helping and mercy, and, and listen, not only helping, but being helped. There's so many times that I've seen God do some amazing things in, things in people's lives, not when they're the helper, but when they're the one who needs the help. You see, it's, it's often in those times that pride is broken. I remember there was a sweet older lady in the faith that kind of mentored me and Amber and <coughs> excuse me, she was always giving. Her house, she always had kids living with her, like she was just taking in people doing all of these things and at the end of her life, she ended up going into a nursing home. And I remember going and visiting with her and and sitting with her and just talking with her and she told me, she said, Dale, God has taught me more in a month here in this room having to depend on someone else to wipe me. She said, I never knew how prideful I was. I, this, this was a lady that I, man, I looked up to. I thought this is, you know, this is a pillar of faith. And she's telling me, oh man, it was fine as long as I was the helper. But now that I'm the one needing the help, oh, God is showing me so much. See, the selfishness, the self-reliance in those moments are broken. And we're brought into a place where we understand our need for the gospel through someone serving us. And God often uses those moments in our lives to teach us the most and to, to discipline us the most. We also see it through supporting and participating in missions work through which we ourselves grow in faith and character and share blessings of the gospel with others. You see this in Acts 13, 1 through 3 and Acts 14, 27. And this is something that I've had the privilege and the benefit of witnessing so many times in Guatemala. And just a side note, I'm so excited that things are starting to lift so that we can get back into doing missions. I actually spent last week on Grand Bahama looking at mission opportunities for us to be able to go over there and, and to serve as a church. But I, I can preach and preach and preach and give out book after book after book. But two days in Guatemala and people get it. They, they realize how much they have. I can tell you how much you have. I can tell you, you every single person sitting in this room is in the top 1% of earners in the world. And you go, yeah, no, I'm, I'm so poor, you don't understand, Dale. 
But when I take you to a third world country and I show you what poor is, what living off of a dollar a day looks like, you realize, whoa, I am rich. And so, and so God uses those trips in, in a formative way to, to discipline us. These are some of the ways in which God is, is using formative discipline in our lives. And Scripture repeatedly teaches us that the vast majority of formative interactions between members of the church, especially between members and church leaders, should be positive, encouraging, and comforting. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be studying that book next, so if you're wanting to read ahead, be reading through First and Second Thessalonians. But in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, the goal of formative discipline, this process is twofold. First, it's intended to help each of us mature in our faith and character so that we may share in God's holiness. As he enables us to fulfill his commands, to be self-controlled, to be upright, to be holy, to be disciplined, like Titus 1.8 says. But second, the, the pleasantness of, and, and blessings of this process are designed to attract others to Christ and to accelerate the growth of the church. See, when we stop looking at discipline as punishment, it is, hard, it is hard for us to be pleasant about discipline when we're thinking punishment, right? But when we see this transformative discipline, this formative discipline in our life as God's love for us, then it is a pleasant process. Then our countenance changes. Then people around us begin to notice and see something different in our lives, and that attracts them to Jesus. Notice how in that passage that I just read from Acts 2, the part there immediately after talking about formative discipline of the early church, as he's describing it, it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When the world sees the church practicing this formative discipline, this loving, patient teaching, not chastising and rebuking and getting mad because they're not getting it fast enough, which is what we're tempted to do in our own selfishness. Because again, listen, parents, <coughs> pastors, excuse me, are no better than parents, right? We can get just as embarrassed by our church members going out into the world around other church members from other churches, right? And, and I can get word back that, that tells me, hey, this, man, this is what your church member did. You, you call them a church member? They, they were doing this. I mean, I, I saw them doing this. I heard them say this, right? And the temptation of my heart, which can be prideful and arrogant and selfish, is to want to look good in front of my peers, right, in front of my fellow pastors. And so what do I do? I pick up the phone. How dare you? I can't believe you did that. And rather than being patient and self-controlled and loving and long-suffering. Sometimes I wish that word wasn't in the Bible. 
long suffering. Suffering long, right? Instead of doing that, we want a quick result. And so we jump to corrective discipline. And we sidestep formative discipline because we're impatient. And here's the thing that I've learned after doing ministry for over 20 years. If you're ministry or, to bring it home, if you're parenting, is based off of corrective discipline, and that's a majority of your discipline, then you can get short-term, quick results. Because fear is an awesome short-term motivator. But it's a horrible long-term motivator. And one of the reasons why in, in doing college ministry year after year when I first started in ministry, I would see these kids and they would get away from their parents. And the first thing they would do is go crazy. Because they were never taught that God was someone they should love. What they were taught was that God was a person who had a bunch of rules and you should follow them. And the minute they could get away from that, they were gone. They ran. And sadly, to this day, there's still some that I pray for because they're still running 20 years later. But those children who were taught about the love that God has for them and the patience that God has showed them, the kids who understand the very character and nature of God. While those kids still may be tempted to run and may even turn their back for a time, what I've noticed, again, just in my 20 years of experience in a small town, those are the kids that come back the fastest. Because they remember what kind of father that they have in God. And this is something that we have to be very careful of as a church, that we spend the bulk of our time in formative discipline, patiently, lovingly teaching, whether that's from the stage or in your small group. I'm constantly reminding myself because it's easy to forget. Remember, the longer you walk with Christ, the easier this is to forget. Nobody warns you about the dangers in walking with Christ for a really long time. But let me tell you, there's, there's some dangers to it. And one of those dangers of walking with Christ for a really long time is you get really impatient with young believers. And you feel as though you need to be decisive and quick and let's correct this. And, and you completely forget how long it took you. You forget how long it took God working in your life to correct that particular issue. And you just want to see quick changes now. So you jump to corrective discipline. And rather than allowing God to work in their life and get them to the place where they realize their sin and their need for a Savior, right? Living the gospel out daily. You just want to swoop in and you want to tell them that they're doing it wrong. So that they will change their behavior. And listen, while their behavior might change, their heart never does. And one addiction is just traded for another one that's more socially acceptable. 
This is the danger of relying too heavily on corrective discipline. Now, next week, I'm going to continue this message. And we're going to look at when and how we should use corrective discipline in our life. Because we should. But primarily, we should be using formative discipline. Patiently, lovingly, bearing with them. Reminding ourselves of how long it took us to finally get it. Because when we do that, then we're able to come alongside new believers and patiently wait for God to change their heart rather than us just to try to get them to look a certain way, act a certain way, dress a certain way, be a certain way. All while their heart is still rotten at the core. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your formative discipline in our lives. And Lord, another way that we celebrate that formative discipline is through the Lord's Supper. Just, just reminding ourselves on a regular basis that you bore the punishment for us. There, when we talk about discipline in, in the life of a Christian, the idea of punishment was bore on that cross. And God, it's good for us to remember that. Lest we think we should A, either punish ourselves because what Jesus did wasn't enough. And so we, we, we must beat our own selves, Lord. Or worse, we think that you are punishing us instead of loving us. Father, today I pray that we would confess and repent if that has been our heart. Trying to place ourselves on the cross, a place that, that only Jesus could be. To pay a price that only he can pay. Father, I pray that you would help us to see and to be drawn to the love that you have for us. That, that we would see that father in the story of the two lost sons who patiently, eagerly awaits our return and throws a party when we Father, I pray now as we take from this cup that represents your blood that was shed for us and we take this bread and we dip it into the, into the cup that, that is your body broken for us, Lord. That we will come celebrating. Celebrating your goodness and your patience and your love that you have for us. these things in Jesus' name. As you continue to pray, please come and celebrate with us this morning. The Lord's Supper.